passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. If you're somebody who's new, my name is Kurt and I'm one of the pastors and it's great to have you. Uh, some other announcements before we get too far. Uh, I'm going to tell you about our first core value. The first core value is community. We believe that people are important and relationships are important, which is that's one of the reasons we use name tags. And today we kicked off using our name tag system. So hopefully all of you were able to grab a name tag when you came in and we knew we would have some problems because you always have some problems when you start these things. We did have a few, but I think we've begun to iron those things out. So if you do have a little hiccup at a kiosk, just let us know. We're going to get those straightened out and continuing to be smoother. But I encourage you to wear the name tags because names are super important, especially when you're talking to somebody after church. You're going, I don't really know who they are. You talk to your spouse. Do you remember their name? Oh, I don't remember their name. And then here's this like awkwardness that goes on. So if we don't know everyone's name, imagine if you were a visitor this morning or you're somebody who's new and they don't know anybody's name. And so a way to be super welcoming and friendly to them is simply wear our name tags so we can you know, live out one of our core values, which is community and relationships. Uh, second announcement is that another core value we have is outreach. And we believe in reaching our community by serving our community. One of the ways we like to serve the community around Christmas is on Christmas Eve, we take a special offering. None of it goes to us. It all goes to either missionaries or ministries that we feel we can really do some spiritual good to during the Christmas season. This year, the combined offering from all of our campuses will go to three, it'll be split three ways. It'll go to Atlas of the Lakes area, as well as Atlas of Spencer, as well as Timber Bay. And I don't know if you know what those ministries do. Atlas, they work with people who are really at the end of their rope. They're the ones, people who don't have a job, they don't have a place to live. They need people really to help them in their time of need. And Timber Bay works with students who are often going through difficult times and troubled times. And so as we thought about what would be the places that God would want us to put our resources to at Christmas time, the verse that came to mind was James chapter 1, verse 27, where James writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled is, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their affliction. And we thought, well, widows, that's sort of what Atlas does, looking at after those people who have nobody else to look after them who are at the end of their rope. And orphans, that's sort of what Timber Bay does. Maybe not all literal orphans, but people who are students who are really going through difficult times. So that's why we've decided to divide our Christmas Eve offering three ways between those ministries. So we say this ahead of time, just to give you a chance to pray, to ask how God would have you give on Christmas Eve so you know where it's going and what it's doing. And at Christmas time, when we're so thankful for what God has done for us, what a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to invest in doing good to other people, especially in their difficult times. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. But before I dive into our study today of 2 Samuel, I want to give you a little process check of what will be happening with our teaching for the next few weeks. Today is actually our last study in 2 Samuel until the, the new year. 
beginning next week, we will be doing a Christmas series. Christmas. Didn't, didn't Kathy, hold on, there you go. See, Kathy trained somebody well. I was waiting to see if you guys were as quick as first service. We'll be doing our Christmas series, which is, uh, what, if, what if Jesus had not been born? That's the title of that we're going to do. We're not going to just look at some of the biblical texts and traditionally it tells about Jesus' birth. We're going to take it a little different direction. We're going to look at how Jesus' birth has changed so many things in this world that we probably have lost sight of, the significance of that. We'll look at how Jesus' birth has changed the whole sanctity of human life. We'll look at how his birth has changed the way poor are treated in the world and through history. We'll look at how education is something that Jesus' birth has completely changed. And medicine and hospitals is also something that Jesus' birth has completely changed. So it'll be biblical, but it'll also be sort of a historical survey. I've been doing some research on that, and I'm really excited to be able to share it with you. I think you'll be fascinated when you come to understand the significance of how Jesus' birth has completely changed the world. Uh, Jordan and I, Pastor Jordan from the Spencer campus, will be flip-flopping back and forth between campuses in that series. So I'll get a chance to visit the Spencer campus, and Jordan will get a chance to visit here, and that'll be a lot of fun. Then in the new year, we'll return to 2 Samuel, and at that point we'll have about five chapters left in the book, and that's where we'll go. So this morning we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to pick up in verse 8. And if you haven't been with us in previous weeks, last week, last week was a pretty wild message. It was like a Mission Impossible movie, maybe a Jason Bourne movie. It was crazy. The book of 2 Samuel is essentially the rise and fall of King David. The first half of the book is about the rise of his life. And then in the middle of the book, in chapter 11, is when David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then he murders her husband. And then that's the second half of the book. It's about the fall of King David. And probably the biggest bump in the downside of his life in the second half of the book is his son Absalom. His son Absalom uh, works a coup against him. Last week, we looked at the battle that came with the coup where Absalom, um, well, David and his family had fled across the desert, crossed the Jordan River, had gone to the city of Mahanaim, there they arrived, tired, thirsty, weary, exhausted, without supplies at the end of their rope. Absalom had also crossed the Jordan River pursuing his father, and he crossed the Jordan River with all of Israel with him. He had conducted a general draft of all the men in the nation, and his plan was to take the men and literally to fall upon David and snuff him out like a candle, him and all of his soldiers with him. But you know, it's in our darkest moments when God loves to do his finest work. Isn't that true? We see that in story after story in the Bible. And that's exactly what happened to, to David, God's chosen king. God showed his grace and came to the rescue. First, God moved the hearts of a number of wealthy men in the area to bring food for David and supplies. And da God enabled David to reunite with Joab and his army. Then when the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim, even though David and his men were completely outnumbered, 
the text reads like God was almost supernaturally or providentially at work in that battle. It says 20,000 people died. Most likely, that only refers to the men of Absalom who died in that battle. And then it says, but more died, or more were consumed, it says, devoured, literally, by the forest and the trees, the forest and the sword. God was at work fighting for his king, destroying the army of Absalom in the forest itself. Then we saw that the one man who had started this whole thing, Absalom, he ended up with his hair caught in a tree, dangling between heaven and earth. And Joab, David's general, finished him off. And as we learned, those battles are like chess matches. When the king is done, the game is over. And that's where we pick up this week. The game is over. Absalom is dead. And everyone in the nation is in complete shock and disbelief. Nobody thought that Absalom would lose, especially with such a large army, such an overwhelming army. Nobody was prepared for David to be alive. And people are asking questions. With David alive, what should we do? Should we restore him as king? Should we bring him back as king? And if David comes back as king, what is he going to do to us after we committed treason? After we united together to kill him and his family? Is he going to carry out revenge against us like he probably should? Or will he show forgiveness and kindness and mercy? If you've ever been in a situation where someone has hurt you deeply. Someone has wounded you in ways that you just cannot forget. Then you've come to the right Sunday. Because today, we're going to find out about the unexpected kindness and forgiveness of a king after so many people tried to take his life. And whatever we have to forgive someone of, I guarantee you, it's not nearly as significant as a king trying to forgive people in a nation who tried to snuff out his life, the wife of his children, and his family. So we pick up, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 8, right on the top of your outlines. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, which brings us to what we learned about before. When the king Absalom was dead, everyone gave up. They went home. And we see this. Now David pursued unity instead of revenge. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. Now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? As we saw last week, David had fled across the Jordan River. He had fled to Mahanaim, which is east of the Jordan, which is considered outside of the promised land. And the nation realized that now they had no king because Absalom was dead. 
but they probably needed to have David back as the king. David in the past had protected them from their enemies. David in the past had conquered the Philistines. And people are arguing, can we have him back? Maybe we can have him back. If he comes back, what's he going to be like? If he comes back, what's he going to do? Sort of reminds me of a challenge that we also face. We have a king. His name is Jesus. But don't we, like the people, sometimes rebel against our king? Don't we, like the people of Israel, sometimes go our own way? And we go our own way, we do our own thing, and God conveniently has our life just fall apart, doesn't he? And then when our life falls apart, we, we know we have to go back to Jesus, our king. But we're asking in our hearts, Jesus, after what I did, after how I left you, what are you going to do to me? How are you going to treat me? Are you going to punish me? Or could you find it in your heart to forgive me? That's the question that we often ask. And we know the answer is that Jesus is incredibly kind. He's incredibly forgiving. But so is King David. Incredibly kind and forgiving to people that probably don't deserve any of it. As we come to the next set of verses, what we find is that the people, as they're arguing about this, the northern ten tribes sort of come to a consensus that they do want David back. Well, they want him back, but there's a tribe that is missing, that has not requested him to come back, and that is the tribe of Judah in the south. Why was it that Judah was absent? Maybe Judah didn't want David to return. I don't know for sure, but you look at the coup that happened. Many significant things happened in the tribe of Judah. Hebron, where Absalom was crowned king, is inside of the region of Judah. So it seems like the most vicious part of the rebellion actually happened inside of Judah. So they're most afraid of asking David to come back. So David decides to message them. I'm sorry, he did not have Snapchat. He did not have a text message. He actually had to write this out the old-fashioned way, but that's what he does. He messages them. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Zadok and Abiathar, you remember the role they played. They were the head of his spy network during the coup. These are the guys that he can trust to be loyal to him, that he can trust to use to get a message through. So he gives them the message to the elders of, the king, the elders of Judah. Guys, why won't you um, bring me back? Everybody else is talking about that. What David is trying to avoid at this point is called a civil war. If you go back to when David was first crowned king, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, it was the tribe of Judah that first crowned him king. But it wasn't until 2 Samuel chapter 5 when the northern tribes, 
actually recognize David as king. And between 2 Samuel chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 5, you have a bloody civil war in the land. What's happening at this moment is the exact opposite. Instead of Judah asking him to become king, and the northern tribes coming later, the northern tribes are asking him to become king, and Judah hasn't said anything. So he takes the initiative to send a message to them. So he's trying to bring healing to the land, healing to the nation. And then he says this, by the way, guys, you are my bone. You are my flesh. We're family. We're supposed to stick together. We're not supposed to fight together. Incidentally, that very language that he uses, it's the same language that was used in 2 Samuel chapter 5, when it was time for the northern kingdom, and they wanted to recognize him as king. They used that very same language. Let me show you, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. I think there's a practical message for us right here in the text. You notice what David did to try and create unity in the nation, to try and bring all of the tribes together? He humbled himself, didn't he? Humbled himself. And David probably has a right to get revenge. David has a right to get his pound of flesh. He has a right to be angry, doesn't he? When people have a coup against you and your family, you have a right to be angry about that. But rather than getting revenge, he humbles himself to try and think, seek unity amongst the tribes and amongst the nations. Unity, folks, is a very important thing. And the only way unity comes amongst the people is by humility. Humility in the people and humility in the leaders. Unity in a family is a very important thing. Unity in a church is a very important thing. And the only way you can find unity in the church and the family if, is if people are willing to be humble and not try and get revenge when they've been hurt, not try and get even when they've been hurt. The Bible says this about unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So David humbles himself, not seeking revenge because he's trying to get unity in the nation. But the next thing we see that David does to get unity is he tries to compromise a little. Sometimes to get unity, you have to compromise. Now, I'm not saying compromise on the core values, but you can compromise on the things that you can compromise on to let other people know their input and who they are is valued and important. This is what David does in verse 13. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army, from now on in place of Joab. Do you remember who Amasa was? We met him last week. He was the commander of Absalom's army. And to let people know, 
that David genuinely wants unity. He's not out for revenge. This is not a bait and switch. He says, I'll be the king, but Amasa, the commander of Absalom's army, can be the head of my army. Now, that's a strong message, isn't it? That David is just trying to get people back together again. But I think there's another twist to it as well. Joab was the commander of David's army, but Joab is going to face a demotion at this point. Actually, he'd be demoted to only be a commander of a third of the army, and a massa will be head over him. And incidentally, he's not going to take that too well in the following chapters, but we'll have to wait to January to show you how that goes. But I think that there's a little bit of the demotion that goes on for Joab, because remember what Joab did in the last chapter? Even though David has expressly said no one is to kill his son, Joab actually chose to kill his son. He killed Absalom. So he ends up with a demotion. But this is not just about a demotion of Joab, because in Joab's place, he, put the, he puts the opposing, the opposing army's commander. So this is all really about unity. Now, let me pause and reflect with you. What David has done to try and bring a nation that was at war back together again. The first thing is he did is he humbled himself. It's not about me getting even. It's not about me getting my revenge, even though people have hurt me, even though people have done hard things to me. I'm going to humble myself. Second thing he did is he took the initiative with the tribe of Judah. When they weren't connecting with him and they didn't want him back, rather than sit there and say, well, they can talk to me when they want to. He took the initiative to try and heal the relationship with them. The third thing he did is then he compromised and tried to bring things together and had a massa behead over the army. I thought about this. This can apply so well to us this particular week, because this is the Thanksgiving week. Family gets together. And I am not so ignorant as to think that when family gets together, everybody gets along. Isn't it true that when family gets together, you sometimes have people that get together, you're like, oh, I know they're part of my family, but I really don't like spending time with them. But then here's a good message for us. How do we create unity with them? Even though there are bones, there are flesh. What did David do? Well, we humble ourselves and we spend time with them. We don't try and get revenge with them. We don't try and get even with them. We take the initiative when there's a broken relationship to try and repair that. As far as we can, we take the initiative. And number three, we compromise where we can on what we can to be able to bring people together. The next question is obviously, did it work? The next verse tells us. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return, both you and all your servants. In essence, it worked. But as we continue, we find this. David pursued unity by offering everyone a fresh start. The following verses follow David as he returns from Mahanaim all the way back to Jerusalem. 
It says, so the king came back to the Jordan. Incidentally, this, this entire trip could have been around 50 miles. And the king came to Gilgal to meet, uh, excuse me, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. Well, the tribe of Judah was the last tribe to speak of David returning. They're the first tribe to go to the Jordan River to meet him as he returns. When you see places and locations that are mentioned in the Bible, chances are there's something significant about that location and place. And that's what we find here. David's going to cross in the area of Gilgal. Now, is Gilgal just an area? where the Jordan River is smaller and not quite as wide? Quite possibly. But we do know in history, when Joshua brought the people who had come from the Exodus, and remember those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and they had all died out, and the children of the Exodus generation were the ones that were going to go into the Promised Land. They crossed the Jordan River and went into the Promised Land at Gilgal. This is the location. And when Joshua and the people crossed the Jordan River in that very location where David's going to cross, that is when God re-entered into a covenant with them, wiped away the sins of their past, and gave everyone a fresh start in that moment. This is what we see. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So as David crosses in that very location, he says, this is where our ancestors first came into the promised land. This is where they were given a fresh start by God. And the sins of their past were wiped away. And as we cross this Jordan River in this same place, in this same location, Let's have a fresh start. I'm going to wipe away the sins of what you have done in the past and pretend like they didn't even exist it and together move into the future. What David does, that complete forgiveness of their sins at Gilgal, is really what our king does, King Jesus. This morning, I don't know what you have done. I don't know the shame that you are hiding I don't know what your past is that only you know about, you and God. But I have to tell you that today you have come to Gilgal. Jesus is the one who's willing to wipe away all of the sins of your past, treat you as if it never happened, and give you a completely fresh start. Isn't that what we all want? That is what we all want, all we all desperately desire, and that is what Jesus offers to give to you and me. Not just one fresh start, but he gives a fresh start again and again and again. Because it wasn't just one fresh start that God's people needed under Joshua. It was also a fresh start that God's people needed at this point under David. And incidentally, it's also a fresh start they needed earlier under Samuel. First Samuel chapter 11, verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Let's go back there. We need a fresh start. Let bygones be bygones.
Now I was thinking, how could David find it in himself to give the nation, these people who had rebelled against him, who had committed treason against him, a completely fresh start? And then it occurred to me, and this may not be the reason, but I think it's probably the reason, David knew what he had been forgiven of, and it was serious stuff. And because he had been forgiven of so many significant sins, he could forgive others of lesser sins. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had murdered her husband in cold blood, yet God forgave him of what he had done. Didn't mean there was absolutely no consequences. There were still some consequences, but he was still forgiven and, and restored. And if God could forgive him of murder and adultery, he could forgive the people who got caught up in a rebellion against him. That's the only way we can find the ability to forgive others too, especially when they hurt us deeply, especially when they hurt us in ways that we never expected. It's so hard to forget when people have done hurtful things to us. We always go back, Jesus, you have forgiven me of all my sins. You know everything that I have done, and yet you have forgiven all of it and given me a fresh start. If that is what you have done for me, that is what you call for me to do to others who sinned against me. Whatever we have to forgive others of is far less than what Jesus has already forgiven us of. We preach the gospel with our forgiveness as well as our words. People were hearing about this amazing kindness and forgiveness of King David. When everyone expected revenge, there was kindness and forgiveness from the king. And that sort of motivated other people to start showing up to see David, to maybe they could find forgiveness of the king as well. If you were with us earlier in our studies in 2 Samuel chapter 16, you remember when David was leaving Jerusalem and he was running for his life from the coup. There were men who showed up at that time who just wanted to kick him when he was down. One was a guy named Ziba, we called him the con man, who connived David um, out of a whole bunch of money, basically Mephibosheth's money. He stole it and tricked him out of it. Another was a guy named Shammai. Shammai, he hated David, he hated his guts. And now that David was on his way out, he finally opened his mouth and cursed David out. We called Shammai the potty mouth with the purpose back then. Well, neither of those guys expected David would live to see the next day. They have a serious problem. David didn't just live, but now he's being restored as king. And if anybody's in serious trouble at this point, it's those guys. So they figure they better do something to try and straighten out their relationship with the king in a hurry. So let's meet Shammai, the man who pretended to be sorry to get out of a pickle. Remember back in chapter 16, as David was on his way out with his head covered, Shammai stood on the hillside and cussed him out and gave him a piece of his mind, even throwing rocks and dirt on his head. We read this in chapter 16. There came out a man of the house, of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. 
And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! Right now, he's wishing he kept his mouth shut. We read this. And Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahrain, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. Let's begin by focusing on Shammai. Now, he wanted to run down to meet the king and honor the king and to gain favor with the king. And as we're going to see in a moment, he apologizes and he apologizes profusely. But why did he bring a thousand men from Benjamin? Are they there just to carry David's luggage? What do you think? They're his insurance policy. Oh, David, I, I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. But by the way, if you don't, I happen to have brought a thousand soldiers with me. So if you want to hurt me, it's not going to go down that easy at all. This is what we read. And Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the king. So he admits what he did was wrong. He admits what he did when he sinned. But do you think this is actually genuine repentance? Some of you who know your Bibles well will know about the end of Shemaiah's life. And I'll tell you, this is not genuine repentance. He's sorry for what he did. He's sorry for what he said. But he hasn't changed his mind one bit at all. He still hates David. He still doesn't want to submit to David. He still despises the king. So what should David do? Should David forgive him at this point? Or is this the guy that David should take revenge against? Because after all, his groveling is not genuine. His repentance is not genuine. He has a thousand men from Benjamin as his insurance policy in case this doesn't go well. And there's one man with David who has his thoughts this is what he says. It's Abishai. Abishai, the son of Zerui, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Abishai was second in command of David's army. And incidentally, whenever Abishai shows up, if you notice, he's always asking if he can kill somebody. Think about that. He's been consistently doing that. So obviously he's in the right profession in the military. If he was a librarian, this would not go well but he likes to kill people. And then he says, this guy should kill for be killed for having cursed you and all the terrible things he said against you. Can I take his head off? It would be my pleasure. I like to do those kind of things. And David responds. And David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zerui? 
that you, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. David decided to forgive him, at least for now, even though everybody knew that his repentance was just to get himself out of the pickle. His repentance wasn't even probably genuine. He even chose to forgive him after all the hateful and hurtful things he did. And David gave, there's really two reasons for this. One, he says, do I not know that I'm king? Like, if I kill this guy or if I let this guy live, it really does not impact my future one way or the other, does it? I'm king either way. If I kill him, it's just to get personal revenge against him. So I don't need to do that. Secondly is this. I think if David kills Shammai, it sets a really bad precedence for his renewed kingdom and the future. Everybody knows about the things that Shammai said to David and how hurtful and vicious he was to David. If David kills him, then other people are going to say, well, maybe I better not try to make things right with David, or maybe he'll kill me as well. But if David forgives him, it won't just be forgiving Shammai, but other people will say, there's things I've done that were hurtful to David, things that I did that were nasty to David. But if David could forgive Shammai with his non-genuine repentance, maybe David could also forgive me. And here's a lesson that we can all take from this. When we forgive people who hurt us, even people whose repentance to us is probably not even necessarily genuine repentance, it's just their repentance to get out of the pickle, you know, that doesn't just heal a relationship with them, but it helps us heal relationships with many other people around us. Because when people learn that we're a gracious person, that we're a forgiving person, especially to people who don't deserve to be forgiven, people will come to us and say, maybe if you forgave them, maybe you can forgive me. And all of our relationships start to become much healthier, much more candid, and much more whole. Because when we become a forgiving person, other people approach us that way. So this Thanksgiving, when you get together with family. And I know sometimes family can be a, a little odd. What is the reputation you have in your family? Are you known as somebody who holds a grudge? Who hasn't gotten over what was said or done years before? Or do people know you as somebody of lavish, extravagant forgiveness? Somebody who forgives people even when their repentance is not genuine, but you are so willing to forgive others that people feel like they can be around you, they can talk to you, and they can quickly be forgiven by you. Forgiveness like this is catchy, and it makes a difference. Look what the Bible says about forgiveness. These are some great memory verses. If you're looking for a great, some great verses to memorize, choose any of these. Ephesians 4.32 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. But if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This brings us to another person who met David as he returned. The man's name is Mephibosheth. I call him the man to whom money didn't matter. You remember the backstory as David was leaving town? There was a man named Ziba. We called him the con man who brought David donkeys and supplies to help him across the desert. Ziba was the chief servant in Saul's household. But Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, David had placed him over top of the household. And David asked Ziba, so where is Mephibosheth? Wouldn't he be leaving as well? And then Ziba said, oh, he stayed in the city. He's hoping the people will make him king now that you are gone. Boy, that sounds like treason, doesn't it? David, in the stress of the moment, in the frustration of the moment, made a snap decision and said, I'm taking all of Mephibosheth's possessions, all of King Saul's farms and vast wealth, and giving it to you, Ziba, leaving Mephibosheth penniless. Ziba realizes he's about to be found out, and his lies are about to be discovered, because Mephibosheth is going to talk to David now that he's come back. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And immediately we know that Ziba's claims about Mephibosheth staying in Jerusalem, trying to become the next king, are completely bogus. Because Mephibosheth looks like a complete wreck. His beard looks like he's on Duck Dynasty or even worse. His toes are all overgrown. And get this, he hasn't even done laundry since the king left. He stinks to high heavens. You know, takes what, like three days and you've got nasty body odor? This guy has gone on for a month. Do you think that he's trying to become the next king? Not with that body odor, he's not. So obviously he's not trying to become the next king. What he's been in doing is he has been in mourning. Mourning and sadness now that David is gone. And David asks him, why, why was it that you didn't exit with me? Tell me the story. And here's what happens. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. 
but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? The king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Why didn't you leave with me? I tried, David. I uh, asked my servant, Ziba, to saddle up a donkey for me, but then he got on it and rode off, and I was stuck. Remember, Mephibosheth is lame. He can't go anywhere. And that's his excuse as to why he was not able to exit with David. But what I love is his attitude now with the return of David. He doesn't sit there and say, now I demand that you give me my property back. Now I demand I get my rights back. He's a very humble guy. He says, you know what? I don't even deserve to be alive. Yet you have been so kind to let me eat at your dinner table all the time. I've received kindness from the king. I, I don't need the money. You're like the angel of God. You can tell what's right and wrong. Whatever you decide is fine with me. And David decides to split the property. He gives half to Mephibosheth, half to Ziba. And then I love Mephibosheth's reaction. You know what? As far as I care, he could take the whole thing. Because to Mephibosheth, what's important is his king. To Ziba, what's important was money, wasn't it? Money and using the king to get what he wants. But to Mephibosheth, what's important is having a relationship with the king because that's more precious to him than anything money could ever buy. And I thought when I read that, what an incredible message for us today. What's more important for you today? Money? Benefits, wealth, power, or a relationship with the one true king of the universe, Jesus Christ. Some people have all kinds of money. You can read about them in the, in the news. All kinds of benefits, all kinds of power, but quite honestly, they're completely poor because they do not have a relationship with the one king of the universe who forgives us, who makes us the most blessed beings in the universe. Other people... They know Jesus. They are forgiven by Jesus. They are blessed by Jesus, but they don't have hardly any money at all. But they have the one thing that really matters, which is a relationship with the king. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Maybe this morning you come in here and you've got all kinds of money and power, but you don't know Jesus. But I have to tell you, you're completely poor until you turn to him and trust in him. That's what really matters. Or maybe you came in here this morning and you're struggling to make ends meet but you know Jesus, you call out to Jesus, you love Jesus, and you're loved by Jesus. You, my friends, are truly rich. Maybe not financially right now, but for all of eternity, there could be no more blessed beings in the universe than those who are sons and daughters of King Jesus. My, that's you and me. This brings us to another man that David meets. The guy's name is Barzillai. I call him the man who cared about the next generation. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come from Rogaline, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. 
We met Barzillai last week. He was one of those wealthy men that God moved their hearts to supply David and his family with food and supplies at Mahanaim when they were in desperate need. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a wealthy man. What I love about this guy, he's old, but he's still active. He's old, but he's not checked out. He saw his king in need, and he stepped up to do something about it. And David is so delighted with his kindness and generosity that he wants to reward him. The king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Come on over. It's going to be an all-expense-paid vacation for the rest of your life, hanging out with me. But look at his answer. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chinham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chinham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire from, of me I will do for you. I love Barzillai's reason. I'm an old guy. I can barely hear anything. I can barely taste anything. I'm one of those old people that's worried about being a burden to others because you know as you get older, you don't want to be a burden to others with your illnesses and your sicknesses and your weaknesses. That's Barzillai. He says, don't reward me. I'm more concerned that you reward the next generation. Who is Chinham? Most likely, from what we can tell, it's either his son or his grandson. So Barzillai says, don't reward me with kindness from the king. My goal is that you reward my sons and my grandsons with kindness from the king. As he got older, his hearts and prayers and thoughts were for the next generation, not for himself. What a godly man. He cared that his next generation would have a close relationship with the king, more so than he would have a close relationship with the king. And by the way, the scriptures tell us that it seems like Chinham did receive a very close relationship with the king. We see this in Jeremiah 41, 17. And they went and stayed at Gareth Chinham near Bethlehem. Apparently, David gave this guy an area right near Bethlehem, which is right outside of Jerusalem. We also see this in 1 Kings chapter 2, when David's speaking to his son Solomon. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. 
So what I love about this guy is he has a heart for the next generation. Show kindness to my son, my grandson, Chin Han. We want them to know the king. Folks at Crossman's, this is what drives us. Sometimes you hear about us talking about intentionally passing the baton, getting leadership into the hands of those who are younger in the faith, giving opportunities to reach those who are in a younger generation in the faith. Because our heart is that the younger generation that is growing up around us and among us may know and love King Jesus too. Our prayer is not that God would bless us, but God would bless them with a close relationship with the very king of the universe. And whatever we can do to hand off the baton to them, that we feel is success. And then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chinham went on with him. Then we find, as the text closes the chapter, it's this. Unity is often destroyed by petty things. Remember how this began? David humbling himself, not seeking revenge against those who tried to take his life. David um, took the initiative to bring Judah back into the to the relationship so Judah would not be split from the other tribes when he came back to the nation. David compromised where he could compromise. He is working very hard to create unity among the people and unity in the kingdom. But it starts to get torn apart by petty, silly things. And all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Judah came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? So the people in the, the northern kingdom starts accusing the people in Judah in the southern kingdom of stealing David away from them. And the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, well, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? Well, he's showing no favoritism to us. He's not giving us any kind of a privileges. Why are you guys so upset about the fact that you feel you were a little slighted when it came to bringing back the king? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, well, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak about bringing back our king? We have 10 tribes. You only have one tribe. We're bigger than you are. By the way, this idea of bringing the king back, it was our idea before it was your idea. Are you starting to see petty bickering taking place here? All over the place. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. In spite of all of David's humility and hard work to create unity, the unity in the kingdom starts to get torn apart by petty, bickering, tiny, insignificant things. And I thought, isn't this what happens to us in the church? 
our king, has worked super hard to bring unity among us. Jesus has gone to the cross, has taken your sin, has taken your sin, took all of your sin and absorbed it into himself. And he died for you. He died loving you. He died to save you. And he died to knit us together as brother and sisters in Christ. Our identity is to be the most blessed beings in the universe. That's what's significant, right? Then what happens in the church? Well, they didn't invite me to the party. Oh, I saw, they gave me a dirty look when we left. Did you know that I should have been on that committee? And then what do we do? The church splits. People go their own way and there's no unity in the body because we're divided over petty, silly, foolish things. When the Jesus who unites us should be much greater than any petty, foolish thing that divides us. If David worked so hard and humbled himself so much to create unity among Israel, yet it was divided, Jesus worked even harder to create unity among us. Let it not be divided. Let us not divide on petty and silly things. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this chapter, we are in awe at David's humility and all the hard work he did to try and create unity in the nation. Yet it was divided and torn apart. Father, the son of David, Jesus Christ, has worked much harder to create unity with us. May we not be a church that allows ourselves to be divided over petty, foolish, and silly things. May we be a people who are known for forgiveness of others, even when they hurt us. Crazy amounts of forgiveness, like David forgave Shemai, a man who was probably very insincere in all of his apologies, yet he forgave them, he forgave Shemai anyway. We ask that you would help us to be those who lavishly forgive others, quickly forgive others, even if their apologies don't seem sincere. Because the Jesus who unites us is far bigger than anything else that could possibly divide us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.